Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 11 years experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Drew Hinshaw, a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal who does, well, it's actually pretty hard to sum up what he does. Besides lifting the curtain on journalism, I love that the podcast has an ability to showcase the sometimes crazy, sometimes ridiculous lives journalists lead. The types of crazy anecdotes that a journalist might tell once or twice in a bar before they just kind of disappear into the ether. Any story that starts with, we were in a convoy driving across the Sahara to Timbuktu, is going to hook me immediately. Drew has those kinds of stories. Like we'll find out what happens when you wear the wrong pair of pants to a press conference with Barack Obama in Senegal. And how you can write a career advice column for a New York newspaper while you're living in Africa. That's not to cast shade at the very serious journalism that Drew does. I came across him as the co-author of the book Bring Back Our Girls, the untold story of the global search for Nigeria's missing schoolgirls. It's about the female students who were kidnapped by Islamic extremist group Boko Haram in Nigeria. Bring Back Our Girls won the Overseas Press Club Award for the best book on international affairs. There's a lot more to the book than a simple blow-by-blow of events, and you should go check it out. Drew goes to Switzerland to figure out how they did the deal to release many of the girls, and even interviews Michelle Obama after kind of bluffing his way into it. First, Drew will tell us how he went from being a music production student in New York City to a journalist living in West Africa, later finding work for Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. The journal will take him from Ghana and Nigeria to Poland and now Madrid in Spain, where he just moved the day before I interviewed him. But his stories really defy geographical boundaries at this point, as he writes about the Zaporizhia power plant in Ukraine while keeping an eye on Poland's right-wing politicians and reporting stories in rural Canada. Drew really has some incredible breadth, and we'll hear a bit about how he manages to do it all. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Drew Hinshaw, a roving foreign correspondent now based in Madrid for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Drew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To warm up a little bit, could you just tell us a bit about where you are both the physical space around you and geographically where you are, and a little bit about what your past week of work has been like if you've been working. Yeah, I um, I just moved 24 hours ago to Madrid. I was in Poland for six years, and before that, West Africa, Ghana and Senegal and Nigeria. I'm in a WeWork in Madrid right now. I'm uh, fairly jet-lagged. <laughs> I um, <laughs> just got in from Canada like 24 hours ago. And uh, yeah, I've been doing um, a pretty outrageous amount of driving around Canada for the past week or so uh, on, a, on a story I'm, I'm working on. Sure, sure. And you're so you're going to be in Madrid from now on, is that right? Or do you have more travels ahead? Well, that's what it looks like right now. I, I didn't know if I'd be in Madrid today. I contemplated flying to Vienna. I'm dealing a little bit with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And we can't really get to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Sure. Uh, so Vienna, the headquarters of the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Regulator, seemed like a place where I might fly today. But at the last minute, I thought, well, the main people are all at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant today. So maybe it didn't make a lot of sense to fly to Vienna. So, so somewhat to my surprise, I uh, woke up in something like my own bed this morning. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> 
Okay, cool. Well, and yeah, I know you've been doing a bit on Ukraine lately, more than a bit, uh, looking at your clips, but uh, we'll get into that later on in the podcast. Uh, a major point of the podcast is to give people, especially young journalists, an idea of how people get to where they are today. And I like to start way, way back at the beginning, which might be a bit weird, but I think it's helpful for people. No, just do it. If you could just tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything made you interested in journalism early on. Yeah, I'm from Atlanta. I, I grew up in Atlanta, in the city. And where to begin? I actually went to, to college from, from music. I When I was 18, I, I wanted to make beats. That was my, my plan. <laughs> and uh, there, <laughs> there was... Uh, I, that's what I had done in high school. That's what I, I was interested. I liked I liked rap. I liked uh, music. And I went to college uh, in NYU. I mean, I, I wanted to go to, to New York, but uh, NYU had this, New York University had this new program for pop music, like pop music production, basically, um, the Clive Davis School of Recording Music or something. And, and um, so I, I w that's what I went to school for. So I got into I NYU to do that. And, you know, I, I was lucky because I probably didn't have the grades or anything to get into that school, except through this like side door of this like brand new program. Lady Gaga was there actually when I was a junior. She was a freshman. It was a tiny program <laughs> of like thirty people at each grade. Wow! So I knew I, I didn't know her well, but like Lady Gaga was there before she was Lady Gaga, and it, yeah, it was like this tiny uh, program where like we spent our classes like you know nine hours a day behind a uh, studio console, learning how to you know perfect the right reverb or like you know move your drum patterns around or you know how to use the right ribbon mic for a drum set or how you record horns without you know. You know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I love music. I like I, I, I it's like, you know, but I knew instinctively I just couldn't bear the thought of sitting in a room uh, full of people chain smoking cigarettes and chewing gum for lunch <laughs> 16 hours a day to record. Like, you know, even even if you're recording the most exciting music of your life, you're sitting in, in a swivel chair in one room in the dark all day. And I just couldn't bear that thought to make it in a world like that, you know you have to really want it. We had these like amazing professors. We had like the guy who made salt and pepper push it <laughs> came into guest lecture. Like, you know, who got do, 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 you know, that, yeah, the whole, yeah. like that, that beat, like I met that guy. That was amazing. I loved that. My, I had this professor who produced Sonic Youth. Oh, wow. You know, like all this amazing, like we met these people, um, Hank Shockley, who was the, like the guy behind public enemy. Like we met these like amazing producers, you know? And, um, well, I loved it. I love just like meeting these people. Like I'm a Goody Mob fan. I love Goody Mob from 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 Atlanta. And I met that that the one of their producers, you know? And like I love that, but I just knew I didn't have I was I just couldn't you'd have to really want it to make it in that world and I wasn't going to sit still in a studio for 16 hours a day. Sure. So I started exploring like other things to do. And I mean, did you complete that program or were you able to Yeah, yeah, I did actually. And I well, because I was like the very first year like when I was a freshman, there were no sophomores. We were like the very first <laughs> year. Because of that, I got to kind of define it on my own terms, you know? Mm -hmm. So I had this professor who's still a friend of mine, Robert Criscow, who was, uh, he, he's the self-anointed dean of American music criticism. He wrote for the Village Voice for decades. Um, you know, one of America's top music critics, you know, from that Lester Bangs generation. And yeah, he helped me kind of start I, I created like a course in music journalism is what we called it you know it was like an independent study track within this other program that was about something completely different so i started interning at rolling stone that was probably my uh first big thing you know 
at the time they like didn't know they had like a website they're like we don't know what to do with our website and like do you want to blog on it and i was like sure so like when we went to like <laughs> rollingstone.com you saw a bunch of articles written by like i don't know i was maybe 19 at the time you know it's like that was <laughs> their website they were so focused on the magazine right so that was kind of how i got my start in journalism was at uh, rolling stone randomly enough cool yeah and i imagine yeah just being in new york like helped put you on that path absolutely and yeah, I've heard that from many people, like the early days of magazines, like the websites were just whatever. So totally. and nobody had any idea what to do with them. So yeah, how long were you interning there for? And uh, where did things go from there? So I was there for like, uh, well, I was there for, actually, it was great because I was there for six months, but they let me stay on. I, I had this job of I fact checked Matt Taibbi's columns. Oh, wow. For a while. I don't think I, which was great because like, you know, Matt Taibbi is very successful and, and kind of fun writer, obviously. But like, there weren't always a lot of facts to check, you know, <laughs> it's like, how do you fact check? Like, he's the vampire squid guy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. he wrote a sentence like uh, Rudolph Giuliani looks like a, um, <laughs> the hunchback child who grew up hiding pornographic magazines from nuns. It's like, how do you fact check that sentence? You know, it's like we had a red pen and a blue pen and you're supposed to go through every single letter. And if that letter is correct, it gets blue. If the letter is wrong, it gets red. So that's what I was doing to this guy's columns. But, you know, so literally, you know, vampire squid. I don't think I, I didn't fact check that one. But, you know, somebody would have crossed out every letter of that and just said, yeah, I guess that's factually accurate. You know, what do you, <laughs> what do you make of? But I have to say, Rolling Stone, at least when I was there, from my personal experience, we had really high factual standards, you know, for all the kind of like rock and roll zeitgeist there and like Matt Taibbi's personal style of writing. It was the facts like, you know, we really did check every fact in those articles. And like, you know, if he had a quote from a politician, we'd go back and find I would go back and find the politician talking and check every single word of the quote. I don't think it was ever wrong. I don't remember him ever like getting something egregiously wrong at all. Wow. But yeah, that's a good way to start. And obviously a way to support yourself in New York as you're getting going. Uh, so how long do you stay there in fact check? So I was so I was there for six months, and then I stayed. I, I even though I moved on, I kept doing things for them, which is I, something I really recommend. Like just because your internship is four months doesn't mean you can't just keep offering your. You know what I mean? I just someone told me this once. I think it was a. It was a. I wish I remember what music producer it was when I was doing the music thing. Always say yes. Just always say yes. If someone asks you to do something, always say yes, and then figure it out. You know, and that's maybe the best career advice I've ever received. So I anyway after Rolling Stone. I got this other internship at this newspaper, Metro. I don't know if you know this newspaper. It's like in New York City. They handed out, at least they used to, handed out on the subway before COVID and all that. So funny enough, I got this internship there. And like, I just approached kind of one of the editors and just basically said, hey, look, you know, I'm here. I want to do more. You know, I don't, I, you know, I just, what can I do? Do you need, like, what, what else can I do besides just, uh, I don't even remember what we, I was doing as an intern there. So they gave me this twice a week column. They paid me $100 a, a column. And this is hilarious. My column was like career advice, huh. you know? So I was like an unemployed, like 21 or 22 year old, like writing the career advice columns, you know, <laughs> as if I have any to, but what I would do is I would call up career counselors, at least two for every article. And, you know, I just stupid questions like, you know, what font should you use on your resume? I'd call up two career advice counselors, you know, and they always obviously want to be quoted and are eager to chat about this stuff. So I would get paid $200 a month to produce two columns like that a week. You know, what font? Experts say this is the font you should use on your resume. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, I remember that paper. I lived in New York for like a year interning also. 
until I ran out of all my money. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happens, right? Because like, you know, I mean, when I, a long part of this, I was living in like a condemned building. Like none of this oh, was wow. like financially, you know, which is why there's that twice a week column is open to like a 21 year old because it, it does, you have to kind of be scraping the bottom to, to live off this stuff. But uh, yeah, that was what I what I did. What what happens from there? I mean, do you do you figure it out in New York and get a full time job, or do you? Well, the life changing thing that happened to me was I studied abroad in Ghana, and there were many reasons why I chose that to do that. You know, like one, I remember one of the options was like Rome, and I was like, well, I'm gonna go to Rome someday. Like I felt like if I don't go to, I need to go to Ghana now. You know, part of it was like you know just uh, I don't know, like growing up in Atlanta and having this sense that like. African-American history was important to America and, or something like that, you know? I, I don't, it's hard to kind of vocalize. I just wanted to see, like, this part of the world that had obviously shaped America just as much as Europe had or anywhere, you know? And um, I felt like I just wanted to go. It was a unique chance, and I, just, I was interested before I ever set foot there and didn't have any kind of real, like, expectations for what it would be like or, you know, I was just sort of, I want to study abroad. The options are, like, Rome israel ghana something like that you know shanghai yeah i just the, i was just obvious like i wanted to go to go to ghana for sure and it was like as soon as i got there i was like interested in the place i had this uh this teacher audrey gadgetpo uh she's a Ghanaian uh professor of journalism there and like the very first day i remember just her like lesson was just so interesting i just realized from the first day i knew nothing about where i was and it sort of cemented in my head the idea that well i think i would like to be a journalist you know, it's just a way of going out in the world and meeting people you wouldn't ordinarily meet. And, you know, going from being like knowing 0% about a place to like 10% about a place, you know, it was an excuse to go out in the world and, and see it, right? So I started abroad there for a few months and then I came back and I just like, by the time I came back, like the recession was kicking off, right? Or starting to like a year or so after that. And as I graduated from college, I just started exploring how I could go back out into the world. And the most obvious way was I... I started applying for a Fulbright scholarship to go to Ghana and study journalism. So I applied for that, and then I had nothing. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, I just it takes a year or more for them to decide. And um, in the meantime, I went to New Orleans because I got two jobs out of college, and I got them like offered like almost the same day. One was like in the Adirondacks, you know, like working a summer job at a newspaper covering the Adirondacks, and the other was New Orleans, and it was 2007, and Katrina was only a year and a half old or something. So I was like, well, obviously, like, New Orleans is the more interesting place. And it was. It was, like, amazing. I like my, my girlfriend at the time is now my wife. We'd moved there together. The city was, like, still very empty. And, like, you know, like, the job was, like, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd check 911 to see what, you know, sometimes it would be, it'd be a murder. And then there would be, like, an alligator at a birthday party. You know, that's the <laughs> kind of, this, and, and that was only one, I was one reporter at this newspaper in New Orleans. It was outside New Orleans, actually. What was the paper? It's called L'Observateur. And it's in Laplace, Louisiana. And I was the reporter. Wow. It was based out of like a little trailer kind of building. And um, there was an editor. There was an advertising person who sold advertisements. There were a couple of three other people. And there was me, the reporter. And um, that was it, you know. And it, you know, it was interesting. I, I only did that for um, maybe three months. And um, my car broke down. And the paper paid minimum wage. And it's just like, I didn't have a car, you know? So you have to have a car to do that. And um, so we just, uh, we went back to New York. That is, um, yeah. That is the reality of local reporting, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. But, it really is, you know? It's, I, would, I loved it. I remember I wanted to go back. When I left, I was like, wow, I got to find a way to come back here because this place is, 
interesting and you know i felt like my, you know being the only newspaper reporter in a newspaper you kind of feel like you you feel a sense of like wow this matters if i write this up we had this one story which was like someone was opposing it was like nimbyism someone was opposing the expansion of a dog kennel for like stray dogs and because they because they couldn't find room for these stray dogs they were like having to put a lot of these strays down to death that they could potentially keep if they had more space so we wrote that story in a way that was probably pretty jarring. It was like, you know, the local kennel says because so in council or parish person so-and-so opposes extension, they are putting X number of dogs to death every week. You know, next thing you know, there's like a crowd of people at the next parish council meeting. They're all very upset, you know? It's like you feel like your kind of power as a local news reporter in a way you don't. You know, if you could write, you cover the French election. Wow, that's very interesting. But like, it has no impact. You cover like a dog kennel that can't expand, so they're having to kill dogs. And like, all of a sudden, next thing you know, they can expand. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. The much more immediate impact, let's just say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you go back to New York. Yeah. I went back to New York. I was doing this kind of, uh, this is, I was still doing this twice a week career column. I did that thing for like five years, man. I've written (laughs) like thousands of career columns, you know, but it was like bread and butter. You were still writing it from Africa or something. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what happened? I went back to New York and then I get my Fulbright scholarship and I got it like, wow, that's awesome. So I moved back to Ghana and I spent a year there and I like really recommend this. If you ever like, if you ever go out to become a foreign correspondent, just like live with a family. Like don't just go there, book an Airbnb, start writing stories, whatever. I live with the family because I was on a Fulbright scholarship doing other kinds of work. I didn't have to write a single article for my first six. I could have the whole year without writing an article. So I just, for the first six months, at least I learned Chui, which is the predominant language in Ghana. I live with two Ghanaians, my age. I, I just lived there for like a year. We were, we were living in what uh, is called the boys' quarters in Ghana, which is like kind of like a concrete shed next to the main house. So we like, there was this wealthy family that, you know, I think the landlady lived part-time in London and she'd come back or her family was living in this big main house. And then they had the quote-unquote boys' quarters. And that's where we, the boys, <laughs> lived, you know, <laughs> under this like tin roof. It, it flooded all the time. It was not, you know, but it was also, I was young and I, I like, I just, I, 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 it was how I started covering West Africa, and I, I really loved not having the pressure on my first week to write up some story about like what the latest political trends in Ghana say about you know currents in the subregion or something like that. You know, it was just wow, I'm just gonna live here. I'm gonna like, uh, I I went to class. I you know I took language classes. I you know I did all kinds of stuff like that, and uh, I joined a brass band. You know, I was in like a brass band for a while. That was kind of fun. You know, like I just I did <laughs> local stuff, I guess, and there was no pressure to sum up this country for an international audience that, you know, a country that I barely knew at that time and was only getting to put my feet down in. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to start. And yeah, I knew a fair few Fulbrights in China when I was there who, yeah, a lot of people got their start that way. You know, it gives you a way to get to the country, which is often the hardest initial part, just like, you know, getting exactly a base set up. It really is. So that Fulbright program is amazing. I wish they I hope they should expand it or do whatever. 
it's just, yeah, anyway, I'll let you continue. I don't have anything brilliant to say about the Fulbright, except, you know, great program. Thanks for the money. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And at the end, you can kind of do or not do your project, just write up like exactly. a one-page report and yeah. uh, let them or know what happened. Or you can be happened. like, wow, I came to do this project, but actually, objectively, this is a way more interesting project. So off you go and you do that. It's, that's super cool. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, it sounds like before the end of it, you are already starting to write for publications. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I was still doing my twice a week career columns, you know, like wow. <laughs> um, what's the right body posture for a job interview, that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, still cranking those out. So I started to write for Christian Science Monitor. I started to write, I think, Global Post. Was this website no longer yeah, yeah. exists or it is? I don't, I don't know what this latest with them, but I started to write for them. I don't think it exists anymore, but yeah, I remember it. So my advice here, because I know like if you want to start off, my advice here is I just pitched everybody. And my pitches were probably terrible. They were probably way too focused on Ghana. Because the reality is, like, as much as interesting as I found the country, your average reader sitting in New York is not like, oh, let me open the New York Times today and read about Ghana or Peru or any one particular country. So I would pitch all these pitches and they would just say no. And I just keep pitching and I'd ping and you ping, you know, not aggressively, like be polite, like give people a few days to say no and just, hey, I wanted to see if you got this and, you know, ping no more than three times maybe, but I would ping every few days and invariably people feel bad about saying no. So they say, no, not this time, but then something will happen. And when something happens, they come back to you. And if you can deliver when that something happens, then like, for example, in my case, it was uh, Ghana had an election. So, okay, I was there, you know, I wrote up, I hope, decent 800 word spot coverage of like, you know, Ghanaians went to the polls on what Sunday or whatever day it was on a, you know, whatever election that's important for the following reason. And um, once they've said yes to you and you've delivered on that like spot news, now you really have an in where you can keep pitching and pitching and pitching. So... I know that's elementary advice, but like pitch, if you don't get a response, politely ping. And if you get a no, just, you know, stay in touch because the moment will come where like the news is in your country and they need you. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. The other thing that I learned to do, and I think this is also like a little bit of a counterintuitive thing because you go to another part of the world and I'm like interested in this part of the world. Sometimes it helps to like divorce geography from the story. So like, if you're writing about like illegal gold mining in Ghana, well, like maybe just make it about illegal gold mining in general, like, right? Like gold prices were really high back then. Why, why limit yourself to like gold mining here in Ghana? That can be an example of a global trend of like a gold rush that's happening all over the world. If you can substantiate that, if you can hold that up. Now you've got like a story that like has a little bit more breadth and, and depth even than just like here in Ghana, a lot of people are looking for gold. Yeah, that makes sense. So what year was this around that you were? So this is 2008, 2009. A big example. Here's a great example. Like, So I'm just pitching all these stories. Nobody's really interested in my pitches from Ghana until the U.S. President Barack Obama makes his first, one of his first foreign trips. I don't know if it wasn't his very first, but it was like one of his first foreign trips was to Accra. And now all of a sudden I'm like inundated. Literally everybody wants a story from me. And um, that's great. That's when you, now you're in. You're, you're in and you know you once you're in you can kind of get a sense of like all right well these people were interested in this kind of story so let me pitch that there these people pay a lot so let me pitch that there <laughs> and yeah yeah wow and uh i imagine you know even if you're getting paid a hundred dollars a story or not much it goes a long way in ghana 
Yeah, that's true. And it goes a long way when you're you're young and you don't have kids and you know, it's like like do it now if you're you're you know, it's like you're not going to do it when you're 24 or 25. It's going to be really hard to do when you're 45 or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, that that still leaves a, a few years between when you're doing this and when you start at the Wall Street Journal or at least when the Wall Street Journal digital archive starts with your first story. Uh, totally. So are you there for like five years? Um, or? No, what happened is, um, so my Fulbright ends and like, this is why, like, literally just go to everything. Like, go to every silly press conference, no matter how important or unimportant or like ceremonial it is. Like, just go to everything you can. So I had my, I think it was my, like, it was like the day before I was leaving Ghana. There was some kind of thing. Uh, like, I don't even remember what it was. I was no, in no way newsworthy. I wasn't going to make a story out of it, but I just went. And um, the Bloomberg bureau chief at the time, Emily Bowers, who kind of built up that bureau. Like Bloomberg had like no presence in West Africa. Now they have an extraordinary presence. Got great journalists working for them. But at the time, it was like Emily. And I basically said, hey, look, I am uh, I'm leaving tomorrow, but I'd like to come back. And does Bloomberg need anybody anywhere, even as a stringer, a freelancer, whatever? Just, you know, and the answer was like, well, we do need someone in French speaking West Africa, like Senegal in particular. And I had been like waking up at like 4 a.m. to like study French and then go to like French lessons at the Alliance Francaise after a few hours of like cramming. And because I had that sense, well, like I want to cover West Africa. French is the main language and everywhere, but you know, Nigeria, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Gambia, like French is this like regional language, you know? Like my French was at that point like wasn't great, you know, but, <laughs> but it was enough where I felt like, like, okay, I could give this a go. And so like without really any promise i flew to senegal and convinced my girlfriend at the time now my wife to come with me she got a job there actually from new orleans to new york to ghana yeah, to exactly senegal. exactly wow. <laughs> she's yeah so we moved to senegal and <laughs> this is another piece of advice is i would get emails all the time from people saying hey my name is so and so i'm interested in, in doing this what's it like in west africa and i would have these like long phone calls a lot of times and so often they would just never ever come and the people who did succeed i found out it's like no one's gonna promise you yes i need i'll pay you this much money a month and this is what i want you to do nobody knows it's the news right like like absolutely nobody knows what they're gonna need out of senegal or anywhere it depends like you know we didn't have a ukraine correspondent at the beginning of this year now we have like a lot of people in ukraine uh right so um i went to senegal and, like, you know, Bloomberg, after I was there and I kind of filed a few stories, Bloomberg like, took me on and, you know, we got in the system and everything. And I became Bloomberg's reporter from Senegal for several years. And um, I would like cover like, you know, like the peanut forecast because Senegal is like a really important world producer of peanuts. Huh. So I would like, you know, <laughs> I would like really try. I was like, I, I remember being really hyper focused on being the first reporter to get the forecast the government's forecast for how many tons of peanuts they uh, anticipate producing that was you know i kind of like the treasury bill oh my god like if if a this is working for bloomberg if a west african country was going to issue a euro bond it would like be like you know like there's like fire alarms going off in like the bloomberg headquarters somewhere you know and um i don't know what a euro bond is i am like work for the wall street journal i covered multiple countries for bloomberg I do not know what a euro bond is, but I know that they're important. And what <laughs> happens, you have to like get the yield or something. I don't know. But anyway, so like I would like kind of do that kind of reporting for Bloomberg for, for a few years. 
That makes sense. I mean, whenever Bloomberg, that uh, Bloomberg always starts with that. They're like, let's start with the hyper technical like data thing exactly. that we know we can make money off of. And so if they're just starting in Africa, it makes sense that they start with that and they then start with stuff that. on top of that. I learned a cool skill from them, which is to like force, because with Bloomberg, you know, you go into an interview and the CEO of whatever just wants to talk in generalities. And we see tons of opportunities in the everything uh, market this year. And, you know, they want to talk in those generalities. Bloomberg doesn't want that. Bloomberg wants a number in the headline. You know, they want CEO sees X rising 10% because of Y. So like the skill you have to learn in that kind of Bloomberg job is like, sorry, Mr. CEO, what percent do you see your smartphone sales rising or whatever it is? You know what I mean? Like what right. percent of like, you know, you have to like get them down. Do you see this going up or down and by what number, you know? And like people aren't ready for that question. Like, you know, like they, they should be, but like they're not. Always, so you're like that skill of like getting someone way off their talking points and onto one particular detail. That was like a great uh, and like having the like lack of timidity to do that. That is the main thing I learned from Bloomberg, I think, or one of the main things. Huh. Yeah, I, I had to do that. I was the automotive reporter for Reuters in Beijing for a uh-huh. while. Yes, and I, exactly. I had a lot of press conferences with next. I was next to a Bloomberg reporter and a Wall Street Journal yeah. reporter, and it would be the three uh-huh. of us all trying to get the same like piece of information out of them. And I, yeah, I never exactly. did think, think back. Like, I guess it is. I'm, I don't know. Sometimes I think that part of my career is kind of divorced from what I do now. But I guess it is useful just in terms of like pinning somebody down on something and exactly um but uh yeah i hadn't thought about that so you're in senegal but i imagine are are you covering the region at that point or or i was mainly covering you know senegal then there's like this there's this like really fascinating country guinea-bissau just south of senegal and like someday someone's gonna write this incredible novel like magical realist type novel out of that country because it's just like it's incredibly fascinating. I mean, what a place. And so I'd go down, down to Guinea-Bissau. I toured this brewery in Guinea-Bissau. And they, every time there was a coup, they would stop producing for 24 hours and they would start up again. There's just been so <laughs> many coups there. It's just this, like, this country where, like, in other countries, a coup happening is a big deal. People run in. They board up the doors. Like, people are scared. In Guinea-Bissau, it's, like, so somnambulant. It's just, like, people shrug it off. They're out in the streets selling things. It's just... <laughs> It is a really interesting country. And, you know, it has this history of Portuguese. It was conquered. It was colonized by the Portuguese. And they fought this incredibly successful independence movement against the Portuguese. I mean, what a, what a, it's a place that's just remarkable. Is there, I, go, I go down to Guinea-Bissau. I go to Gambia, a bit into Mali, another place that became really interesting in years, later years. I covered a bit. But, like, in general, it was a little bit, like, you know, it still felt a bit limiting in some ways. And then the Wall Street Journal had this uh, job offer. They opened up their West Africa position okay let me think if there's anything before we move on to the wall street journal but no i'll I'll come back this whole time this whole time i was going to guinea bissau i'd be like stepping out in the street to call a career counselor to ask like you know (laughs) do we still dress up for job interviews or more can we more casual now you know i kept that job until the day i took the wall street journal job you know i i produced a lot of those like that stuff that extra 200 bucks a month i needed that (laughs) wow that's crazy. <laughs> That's pretty funny. A week or whatever it was. Yeah. So you were technically a stringer for Bloomberg? Yeah, I was. Um, I forget what the, I don't remember what the term was, but um, they were, I like, had a contract and all that, you know, there were like limits, but they didn't, the career council, I don't, I don't even know if I told them to be honest. I don't even know if I ever uh, told them I was doing the career thing. I wonder if they ever noticed. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> 
they probably they probably looked at it and thought this is crazy this can't be the same drew hinshaw yeah another drew hinshaw yeah exactly exactly and i mean would bloomberg take more general stories from you no bloomberg was a newswire it was a newswire it was not features it was not really investigations at that time you know now obviously they've grown quite a bit i mean this was you know bloomberg's changed a bit but it was economic news the central bank raising rates on this currency that's like not traded really hit a hall you know it's on any kind of global <laughs> scale the the, the SAFA. like the most boring central bank you've ever covered it's like literally they they just don't i don't remember them ever changing rates i can't even remember when in history they've raised rates or whatever it's pegged and the currency is pegged to the euro so there's really not that much to say about it like if the euro goes up it automatically goes up and vice versa yeah so it was like pretty staid newswire stuff and um I gave them everything I could, you know, I, I, I read all of the Senegalese newspapers every day and sent in, you know, because they had these things called press sums where it's like, you know, I don't know, President Abdullah Wad said he's going to do X, Y, Z, you know, local newspaper, you know, whatever reported. But in general, I just I think I maxed that job out pretty soon. So, yeah, going to the journal was a definite step up. It would allow you to do these features and stuff. Uh, the journal had this idea of like we were going to hire you for like dow jones the dow jones newswire and that's going to occupy two-thirds of your time and a third of your time is going to be for the journal but like very early on the journal became my job yeah i just fell into the i basically became the journal's west africa correspondent and where was this so i was in senegal when i uh when i got that job but like one like africa in general and also west africa is like it's it's very big like geographically like the population, the, you know, hundreds of millions of people, like, you know, hundreds of languages, if not thousands, I think 16 West African, ECOWAS countries, the West African uh, Economic Union there. I mean, it's a big part of the world and Senegal is way off to the West. And so like they needed me to move to someplace. The real, the story in West Africa, the story is this country called Nigeria. And they weren't willing to put me in Nigeria because it was such a headache legally getting like an expat position and getting there and the bureaucracy was just a nightmare and they tried and then you move someone there and they're in lagos and they get burnt out in a year because lagos is one of the hardest the best and hardest cities to live in on earth full of energy but just completely difficult so they moved me the cra was this it was like okay well how about ghana you know it's like it's it's there's flights every morning, several times a day, uh, from Accra to Lagos and Abuja. And, you know, it's why not Accra? It's close to Ghana. Um, it was economically interesting. At this point, I think it was the second fastest growing economy on Earth, 2011, this was. So I was like, back to Ghana. Like, I, I, that was great. I loved that. I was like, okay, I'll go back to Ghana. Cool. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, I know how I, I went to Nigeria I had to get a tourist visa. It was uh, hilariously difficult getting a tourist visa in Brasilia to go to yes. Nigeria. And I'd have to show yeah. up to the uh, and they'd put me in this library in the embassy. And I swear they just didn't know what to do with me. And I just kept showing it's up true. and they finally it's like gave, gave yeah. me a visa after like something about me being from wisconsin and the visa officer was like oh i lived there and learned english for a year like in milwaukee and i was like <laughs> exactly <laughs> great can i have a visa okay um right. so that makes sense but yeah. uh i can't imagine for living there no i was just gonna say i mean was this the epoch in nigeria when it was like all about oil and the delta and people getting kidnapped and the pipelines getting blown up i got there just as that was 
kind of coming to a um, what's the right an array a settlement what they call it in Nigeria a settlement <laughs> so right people were getting the right amount of money and the conflict was dying down or at least it was on pause and actually it was this era and this is what I really liked my philosophy at this stage was you know I lived in this part of the world for like three or four years at that point and I just didn't recognize the cities I'd lived in in like Nick Kristoff's coverage which isn't like a knock on Nick Kristoff you know he's often like refugee camps in Darfur, interviewing like, you know, people who've lost limbs and, you know, the most awful story, the more effective for what he's trying to do. I'm not like, there's no criticism in this, but it's just like, where in the New York Times or anywhere do I see like, like Accra? Like Accra doesn't look like any of this. Accra's like, you know, for all its quirks, it's fun place, it's got its dynamism and its dysfunctions and everything else like any place, but like, where do I see it? I don't see it. They had a great correspondent, Lydia Polgreen, who was fantastic. She was doing stuff around that time. Some of her coverage I could see, like, oh, okay, here's the West Africa. She wrote articles about, like, food. You know, like, it's like, okay, well, here I can kind of start to see the, the, like, the part of the world I've, I've known. And um, there was this, like, trend in West Africa at the time. You know, there was a lot of Africa was economically, at least on paper, like, the GDP numbers were fantastic. Like, the economies were growing. And it was, like, this meme or trope like Africa rising, like Africa's the next, the next Asia, you know, America's in recession, America's done for Europe, ugh, even worse. But Africa, that's what that's the next big place, right? And even though that was sort of condescending, <laughs> that like, prism, you know, it's like, oh, Africans buy cell phones, therefore, like, you know, it's like, why is you know, it, yeah, it was kind yeah. of had this condescending or patronizing thing. At the same time, it was a way of talking about like, something closer to ordinary life, you know, it's like we wrote like KFC came to Ghana and like, you know, these fast food like Domino's came to Nigeria and like Johnny Rockets, you know, like fast food is at least something closer to or we could write about that. It was interesting, you know, like this became a way of writing about ordinary life in a way that like covering what was happening at that time. I don't know, covering like, yeah, like Darfur. That's not ordinary life. It's completely deserving of news coverage. But like that is a, a broken society, not one that's kind of in a way, flourishing or even just not flourishing, just a society that you can describe and write about and talk about or at least show in whatever way you can as an outsider. Right. Yeah. And so are you ever based later in Nigeria or how how long do you do the back and forth thing? Yeah. I mean, that for like then on out, I would spend like, like months in Nigeria without ever like renting a place in part because renting a place in Nigeria is it's like you have to put years down of rent. I mean, it's a nightmare. It's hard in a clock too, but like <laughs> Nigeria, just things are just so, and I, I really, I, I love Nigeria, but like, we must be honest about the dysfunction that Nigerians like live with. You can't rent a place. It's like, you have to pay two years advance or something. It's, it's crazy. And like in the prices in the place like Lagos are just like, it's silly. It's, it's, I, I don't know how people do it. So the journal would cover my expenses. They were like really interested in the Nigeria story. The journal was all of my editors, starting with the Africa bureau chief right on up were like, you know, Nigeria is an interesting story. Like, we don't know enough about this country. It's big. We've been ignoring it. So I had kind of carte blanche to, like, just go around Nigeria as much as I could. And I, I loved that. So my wife's a teacher. She'd go home for the summers. And I would just get on a plane and spend as much time there as possible and file as many stories as I could and, and, and try to get a, a handle on the place. Sure. If I'm remembering correctly again... It seems like the Chaibok Girls was in the first, like, handful of stories you wrote. It happened, like, pretty quickly after you sh started the job. Is that right? No, I started in 2011, and Chibok was 2014. 
Okay, the clips only start in 2014, so uh, I guess they're... you know it's there's a a thing that doesn't it doesn't go back all the way. But okay. anyway, so what kind of happened was I had been covering this Africa Rising story in a way, and in the background of that is this Boko Haram thing that is taking place in a part of a country that many Nigerians don't really know very well or haven't been to, or it's a bit strange, doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would have these like word documents. I would save my stories as like based on the number of people that have been killed. So, you know, like Boko Haram killed 33 people in a church on Sunday. That's Boko 33 dot doc. Or like, you know, Boko Haram killed 99 people, Boko 99. Sometimes it'd be like hundreds, you know, 300 something, Boko 300 something dot doc. Wow. It's just getting bigger and bigger. And like at a certain point, like, what do you say about this? Like, you know, you're writing these stories every few days because you can't not when like hundreds of people are killed, hundreds of innocent people are, are gunned down. You can't not cover that. You can't just be like, oh, sorry, we're busy writing about the economy. Right. You know, yeah. so, you know, you can't not cover that. You should. You have to cover it. And um, at the same time, what do you say? So, you know, so there were like weekends when like Boko Haram killed 99 people in the town of Izge. Boko Haram killed 200 people in this town of, you know, and like, what do you say? Like, you know, they just killed 100 people two days ago. Now they killed 200. Like. And almost at its worst, it becomes like sports journalism. Like, you know, you quote these like terror experts sitting in Washington, D.C. who are like, yes, they're definitely upping their capabilities. You know, as if it's like, <laughs> a, like a, you know, you're like covering like the, I don't know, like some like Manchester United or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's like this is a terrorist group. And so, I imagine the government probably doesn't want to talk about it too much either. Exactly. I mean, there was this guy, Ruben Abadi, and you'd email him. He was the government spokesperson. You'd email him and you would literally never you call email text <laughs> i mean to be give him a little bit of credit you know government spokesperson in nigeria it's like there's you know a country of 200 million people there's just a million things going on a million journalists a million newspapers it's just it's too much for a bougie to handle and i think the at the time the president was good luck jonathan i think they just sort of they didn't understand it they just sort of didn't know what to say they just they were <laughs> they were as much at a loss for what there is to say about Boko Haram as i was as some guy from atlanta georgia and this got bigger and bigger. And when the Chibok Girls thing happened, at one point I'd just been like, I was going to do a story about like power privatization in Nigeria. And I just felt like, why am I going to write about, I mean, that's important. Electricity in Nigeria is incredibly important, but like 200 some, you know, 276 teenage girls have just been taken into the forest. And like something about it just resonated and felt like, no, this is a moment. And in Nigerians, it was for them as well. Like, this is a moment where we need to, like, draw a line and just understand what's going on in this part of the country. What's the government's plan? What are you going to do? And it sort of just became the prism through which the war was understood, certainly in the West. You know, you'd have, like, Samantha Power would visit Nigeria. And the first question isn't, you know, how is the United States helping with the two million displaced people? Or how is the United States helping with the war? Or how is the United States helping with Nigeria? You know, whatever. It's... How was the United States helping Nigeria get the Chibok girls back? They became, there's this thing called the identifiable victim, uh, uh, where like, you know, like Anne Frank, she puts a human face on this vast 6 million people killed. Like she is a way to connect with the Holocaust as one, you know, one human being, as an identifiable victim. And the Chibok girls were that identifiable victim for the Boko Haram. You know, they were, they were taking final exams. They were at a, a boarding school in their dormitories on bunk beds the night before they were abducted. They were, you know, 16 to 18-year-olds, most of them. You can, you know, you feel like you, you know someone in your life like this, you know? And they just became this thing that 
actually in a way became they became bigger than the war in the western conscious i'd go home for like mm -hmm. you know my cousin got married i get in a plane i go to like virginia to see a cousin get married and someone like as i'm like you know drinking some champagne and like you know enjoying myself someone's like oh you're in nigeria hey did they ever find those chibok girls like that's the question that every american has about nigeria right yeah and I feel like it was still going on when I was when I visited in like 2017 or 2018. Must have been yeah. 2018. Um, so yeah. it is a long running saga. <clears throat> so I mean, you've written the book, but before that, I mean, how were you writing about it once a month? Were you writing about how often did you write about it, and how did you get information about it? Yeah, Boko Haram became like I said. I, I set out to cover a different side of Africa, of West Africa. I didn't fly, getting on a plane to fly across the ocean and write about how terrible the governments are and they're not doing anything right and the wars are awful and it's so terrible. I didn't, I didn't do, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I got on a plane to like, just see like what this was like and learn and like to the extent I can write in a way that hopefully connects readers to a place they might not otherwise read about. But Boko Haram reached a point where like we had to, like it became like all encompassing and, um, it totally overclouded uh, everything else happening in Nigeria, which, by the way, the whole Africa rising thing, once oil prices like kind of collapsed, like Nigeria just, it's just, oh, and they went through this awful period of, of the currency weakening and the economy was just battered and it was just getting just barely stabilizing when COVID happened. And I mean, just at some point, like Bokram just became all encompassing. And, and shortly after the Chibok girls, I started covering Ebola. That became a big story in Liberia. So I was flying to Liberia quite a bit. And um, there's some part of it that was the saddest part of it. What I, one thing I really loved about that region is just the way people improvised. You know, like there wasn't a plan. Like people made it up as they went along and it kind of worked. Everything was human. Like what you were saying about getting a visa in the Nigerian embassy and it happens because the guy has been to Wisconsin, you know? Right. Yeah. That's how things get done. You know, it's like, it's a challenge. It's also a little bit more human maybe. It's unexpected. It's like, I don't know. I got, that's something I love about West Africa is this ability to kind of like uh, the, the dynamism of the place. But the flip side of that is the dysfunction. This kind of like anyhow way of doing things is how like Nigerians talk about it. Exposed the problems of that. I maybe romanticized it in my early years. I'm like, look, stuff just gets done. It works out. It's fine. You know, it's not, you know, like it became glaringly obvious that like there's this underbelly of that. And um, Ebola really was that because when people get sick they figure it out they fix it they do you know there's not uh, an they, liberia didn't have an ambulance system that's what they needed all this other stuff that poured into ebola i mean the, when i was covering ebola the hotels were full of like data analysts on their laptops trying to chart the I mean, like who cares about that just get some ambulances up and going that was the problem when someone gets sick you need to call an ambulance and the ambulance needs to be wearing ppe like protective you know equipment and they need to take that patient and isolate them that's the whole thing with ebola isolating patients you know but because this country doesn't have that and they have this sort of you just figure it out call a taxi drive to the hospital work it out with the staff method of doing things people were just loading up ebola patients into taxis friends cars whatever and back of motor scooters and that's how the disease was spreading and you know i was literally going from like liberia to then fly to idp camps in northeast nigeria to like cover things that are happening in Boko Haram, you know, like the Nigerian military like fired rockets into a, a, a refugee camp. And I'd fly back and cover Ebola. And all of a sudden, like this side of things just became, it was what, what my work had become, you know, to cover failures, state failures. And um, 
So by 2015-16, I was sort of worn down by that, and I was I was ready to go. I just felt like, look, I've this is this is not you know I I I would call especially during Ebola. I mean, I'd call someone back, and like another voice would pick the phone up, and it'd be like, oh, you know, she died. You know, it's just like it was just it was getting really, really heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. I just I, and you become jaded and a little bit cynical, and I never wanted to be that. Um, I never wanted to be like kind of inured to the loss of life and, and that kind of thing. And so it was time to go. Now in 2016, it was time to go. So I, I, I raised my hand at the paper to leave. And so yeah, let's. Uh, I guess let's catch up to uh, tell me where things go from there to present, and then after that, we'll talk about the book. Sure. So, uh, 2016, you put your hand up to leave. Where do you go? So they had a they had an offer in in Poland, and I thought, well, that's interesting. At the time, it was you know you got a sense that something strange is happening here. There's this new like populism thing, you know. Brexit had not happened yet, but like you got a sense that there were these tensions within the EU that. Well, now they seem really quaint with the war in Ukraine. You know, like, oh, goodness, the Polish constitutional court might not be, you know, it's like suddenly that seems very small when, like, you know, the Russian military is invading a country. But at the time, it felt like, you know, it felt like the world history had ended, right? Whatever the Fukuyama formulation was. And I felt like, no, maybe there's something interesting here in Poland. It's totally new for me. It'd be a totally new set of challenges. It would throw me off my game a little bit. And um, I'd like to do that job. So... I moved to to Poland, which is quite a, a change. Yeah, wow. But yeah, I mean, I can see how after doing all the stuff you'd been doing in Africa, like doing something a little bit more subtle <laughs> in Poland, right? Might be just what the doctor ordered. So that makes sense. So yeah, how do you figure that out? Like, I I know nothing about Poland. I don't know any Polish. I wouldn't know how to start. How do you figure it out? Yeah, I mean. It was, it was a big change, and um, I enjoyed that change. It, it took a while to kind of figure out where the bar is for news there. There's only so many stories you can write about the Polish Constitutional Court, and when you swing at that, you really have to hit it well. I became a bit frustrated with how everything that happened in Poland and Hungary was somehow about, really about America. And, oh, is this what we're going to be next? Are we going to be the next Hungary? Are we going to be the next Poland? And, like, I don't begrudge people for making that connection. But like, nobody has covered Hungary to my satisfaction. Very few people. Maybe Szabol Czpani, this Hungarian, uh, Hungarian journalist who's amazing. Nobody has, because they always make it about America. Like, I'm sorry, Hungary is a country of 10 million people that speaks a very particular language that has its own ideas. It's a very pro-China government. Its anti-migration policies are actually not any different from those Angela Merkel pursued. Not particularly different. Like, Everyone has this story wrong because they're insisting on shoving it through the Trump lens. They're just like shoving everything through the funnel of Donald Trump. So that was my frustration. That became my big frustration, especially as the Trump years got going. Like, like, like Orban is not like Trump. He's not. He's just a different guy. And it's like the Republican Party's like admiration for Orban and that like there's a particular wing. It's like very surface level. They don't want to mimic his pro-China policies. Like, you know, Orban doesn't buy a lot of American gas. He, like, spent a lot of time not buying that. that's You know, I just, I'm kind of rambling here, but that was the frustration I felt. Not so much at the journal. I think the journal kind of wisely took the view of, like, well, we'll just cover it to the extent it needs to be covered. We're not going to make more out of this or less out of this than it needs to be. But, like, every week I write, wake up to another American, either kind of center-left American working for, like, a mainstream established newspaper or magazine or some kind of conservative to nationalist American, you know, jet setting into Hungary to see exactly what they came to see. 
You know, I'm a, you know, a, a Trump voting American. I came to Budapest and I didn't see any gulags. Therefore, Orban is great. Or I went to Hungary and everybody's whispering. They're afraid. It's a new climate of repression. And just like nobody wanted to see Hungary on its own terms. And I guess that's naive of me to think anybody ever would take a country of 10 million people on its own terms. It was in a way like kind of like when I first got to Ghana, trying to pitch stories about Ghana. Like people, people don't want to read about Ghana or Hungary. They want to read about themselves. And that's what I found not frustrating within the journal, because I think the journal took the right kind of, at least, you know, the news side of the journal took the right approach. But I found that very frustrating having to write about a country that was like written about by kind of random people jetting in every week and getting the story, in my view, wrong. So how, how long do you do that for? Until like last week, really. <laughs> but so I was doing that story for, I was just from like 2015, 16 is when I started that. 2016, all of 2016, pretty much, or at least maybe half of 2016, most 2017, I'm doing that. And getting my feet planted, kind of learning how much I don't know, in a good way. It was a kind of a good time. It, the news was not that through the roof. It was kind of a, it was a good time to be learning the ropes in Europe. And then the Chipok Girls get released in May 2000. Uh, not all, about 103 Chipok hostages are released between October and May 2017. And the news is kind of in the back of my head. And, um, you know, I saw there was something that didn't make sense in the coverage of it. Like, you know, the Swiss government was involved. And I'm kind of like, what the heck is the Swiss government doing in Bordeaux State, you know? <laughs> and then uh, me and my colleague Joe Parkinson on the Africa, the Africa bureau chief, who I was helping, you know, kind of him get his feet in Nigeria. We both really loved the country. I was always happy to go there if he needed something there. We had this interview with a cabinet minister. And the question was like, you know, hey, Boko Haram's like, they've put up a lot of bombs lately. They've been really been on terror. They've been doing a lot of attacks lately. Like, what's that all about? And he says, well, because we gave them millions of euros for the Chibok girls. And like a light bulb went off in my head because the word in that sentence that struck out to me was euros. Huh. Because for years I'd written about Boko Haram without ever really understanding what they want. Like I understood it, but I'd, I'd read it, I'd heard it, but I didn't understand it, you know? And then all of a sudden, like, wow, why would they want euros instead of dollars or yen or pounds or whatever? Suddenly that was like at least a place to start. And if we could figure out how and why these world famous hostages were released at this day under these terms, maybe we could understand some little glimmer of who Boko Haram was, why they did this. And like, it would be a way of like making this war in the northeast of Nigeria somehow legible or understandable or starting to understand it'd be a place where you could start to understand what's really going on with this conflict and so do you start covering that from poland do you start writing stories for the journal about it or do you, do you put it toward the book already that was uh september october august that was i don't know some point in late 2017 and um we kind of pitched it up and i just sort of said like look like, our original plan was to do, like, a 2,000-word piece, which, like, I didn't really feel comfortable with, which was, like, we were just batting about amongst ourselves. Like, well, should we do this, like, 2,000-word piece where we say, like, Boko Haram's on a tear because, you know, they got this ransom from the cheap Boko Haram. And I was like, you know, I don't really know if I feel, like, comfortable with that. We just have, like, kind of one person speculating on that. We don't really, it's, how, it's hard. How do you firm up that that's why they're on this, like, upswing, upsurge of attacks? Like, let's think about But I was like, you know, but the story of how these young women were freed feels to me like incredibly important because everyone on earth from the Pope to Michelle Obama had tweeted, you know, bring back our girls, this hashtag to free these students. And somebody, some tiny group of people, which randomly includes the Swiss government, 
actually did that. And I want to know how did they do it? What did it take? So for like the last few months of that year, I did nothing else. I went back to Nigeria, saw sources I hadn't seen in years. And just we, Joe Parkinson and I just focused on like 100% understanding everything we could about this negotiation. I flew to the hotel in Switzerland, which was basically empty at that time, where some of the important sessions had taken place to discussions and kind of flew to Geneva. I ended up learning as much as I could about Switzerland, you know, because like, what, what's it? Why, why is this in Switzerland's interest? Is this about banking or what is this, you know? And like learned as much as we could about Switzerland. Uh, that was like a blind spot for me. And we sort of put this piece together and we like filed it at like, I think 13,000 words. <laughs> wow. We'd met all these mediators who tried, you know, who made real efforts to free these women. women. There was this uncomfortable question that is unanswerable, which I, 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 which is like, did the Twitter campaign, how much did it hurt and how much did it help? Like, it's a really tough, tough question and there's not an easy answer. And obviously, obviously the campaign itself was filling the void that the state should have filled. And it's like the people who led it were heroic in their effort to free these young women tirelessly. But, you know, the dynamics of social media are unpredictable. And we filed this like 10,000 words, ended up being running at 10,000 words or 11,000 actually. It was the longest story the Wall Street Journal has ever run. Wow. And uh, we were like, wow, that was, that was great. And then for like six months, I went back to covering Poland and everything else. And I just had it in my head of like, you know, I kind of think there was a book in that. And Joe Parkinson felt the same way. We set out to tell the story of how they were freed. But along the way, we'd met this one of the one of the students whose name was Naomi Adamu, and she told us how she had survived. And, you know, they, they kept secret diaries. They would write psalms down because they were mostly Christians and they were trying to hold on to their faith. They would copy verses from a hidden Bible, like the Christmas story, like Mary's, you know, ordeal to give birth because they identified with her ordeal. The long distances she had to travel, it was similar to what they were going through. They wrote down the lyrics to song like Shake by Mr. Flavor, you know, <laughs> like a fun Afrobeat song. And I felt like, and they, they really resisted these armed men and hung on to their principles and their faith and their friendships. And I felt like, wow, we set out to tell the story of how they were freed, but they would have never been freed if they hadn't survived. And I think that that is the material for a really interesting book about themes, about, about when it is right to stick to your beliefs kind of about conviction moral conviction and in the background is like twitter very much in the background twitter which is like the arena of moral conviction you know it's like right. the, <laughs> but here okay you've got everyone on twitter who's like angry and outbursts for good reasons but then here are, here are these young women who like live by their convictions for three years they were beaten for it they were starved literally and i just found that like story and the intrigue around what it took to free them and the arduous painstaking work of hostage talks I found that all very interesting and it just became a book that took over the, a year or two of our lives as we just took time off and, and recorded as much as we could whenever we could. We had vacation and moments to do that. So this must have been, what, 2019, 2020? Yes, right. That's right. It was published 2021? It was, it was basically, we finished the reporting by 2020, but you know, you can always keep adding story reporting. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, it's like, it's funny. It's like, I wanted the backstory behind how, how and why Michelle Obama tweeted that. Because she was the most important celebrity, I think, to not celebrity, political figure. She's the most important political figure to tweet that. So I just emailed her, you know, her people and had to kind of like pretend I was already in Washington, D.C. Without like, without like fibbing, just like, like not mention <laughs> that like, oh, by the way, I'm in Poland right now. You know, just like, hey, if you have time in Washington, D.C., I'd be around to see you. And um, sure enough, you know, the right people were available. And I like literally got on a plane, like 
hours later flew, you know, nine hours, whatever it is, you know, got off the plane, did the interviews. Like we had to kind of squeeze in this reporting in really odd moments of the, that was like a weekend right there, you know, for one interview. <laughs> you know, we had all these questions. It became a window for us about how drones work. Um, Cause you know, the America's contribution was to send a bunch of drones. So we had to learn about like the CIA, like what actually it is and how drones work and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. And yeah, a massive reconstruction, obviously, of all the things that happened. And the journal was, I mean, they gave you time for this today. Sometimes people write a bunch of articles and then kind of turn those articles into a book. But it sounds like you guys did a bunch of extra reporting. Yeah, we had to do this on the side. And um, it was a little bit crazy. It's like I went into kind of a strange, I think both of us went into sort of a strange psychic place for a few years, just, you know, doing a J job about liberalism in, in Hungary and Poland and then in the evening like calling up sources in Nigeria or spending the weekends like traveling places and um, I mean luckily one of the big holes in this was Switzerland like because I, I just I, that was sort of me the most one of the most mystifying parts was why the Swiss were involved in this and what contribution they really made and the answers for that were an hour and a half flight from or whatever two hour flight from from Warsaw that helped a little bit Another hole that we hadn't filled was America. So that, you know, that was, I don't know, still very far from Poland. But yeah, yeah it, was, it, was a, it was a strange one, man. I'm not going to lie. It was like, <laughs> by day I'm covering Hungary, by night I'm covering the, the, the Chibo crisis. Yeah. And how, how has reaction been to the book? Yeah, it was really good. You know, I, I felt like, you know, you write this thing and it's sort of in a way lonely. It's just, you know, the two of us sort of writing this up. Then, you know, we had a lot of positive reviews. It won the Overseas Press Club Book Award, Overseas Press Club of America their book award. The reaction was, I, I was, I'm, I'm very humble that it, it got the kind of warm reception it did. I, I, yeah, congrats. I mean, a lot of books kind of, you never know, you can spend years on something and it can sink like a lead balloon. And yeah, exactly. And I was, I was prepared for that. And you know, that's, that's, you know, I, yeah, I did it because I wanted the answers for myself about what happened here. No, that's great. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there are any other questions about that. When did it come out? And can you just give us the full title? Yeah, the book came out March 2021. It's called Bring Back Our Girls, The Global Search for Nigeria's Missing Schoolgirls. I was going to, I was trying to think of original questions to ask you about, and I've talked to authors before, and I was like, oh, well, he co-wrote a book. But I mean, just hearing you tell the story, it's obvious why. I mean, you were reporting the story from the beginning uh, with Joe, so that makes sense to me um, why it would be a two-hander, so maybe no, no real question there. And it obviously helps you get through a kind of long project to have somebody with you on it, I imagine. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I, I was going to ask, uh, I, I saw that you were a Pulitzer finalist, and I was trying to Google what for, and I couldn't quite find it. It was our China series. I wrote, there was like, um, I think we had, I wrote this, we had a story about China and the world. It's about China's authoritarian turn. And our story that we wanted a China in the world story because the question was sort of, well, you know, we have Xi Jinping who's this as strong or powerful as a, a Chinese leader has been since Mao. And what represents the biggest check on his power? And it's not domestic. He does not face a domestic check on his power. The check he faces is in the middle countries of the world, not the United States, but Germany, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, Korea, the extent to which these countries land on a shared and negative view of China, 
when we wrote this, it was sort of up in the air. Like, we don't know. Like, you know, maybe America's day has passed. And like, you remember Xi Jinping going to, to Davos and, you know, welcomed as like, oh, America's just elected Trump. You know, it's all collapsing. A world is collapsing in front of our eyes. I think the French ambassador tweeted. And um, maybe China is ready to like be the pillar of the multilateral world order that we all hold dear because middle powers really appreciate the rules that, you know, they need a system of rules to live by because they don't have the power. So, um, it was about the, the pushback on that. And we had kind of like this moment when like Xi Jinping came to Paris and he was on a boat with Angela Merkel and, you know, Macron and Merkel clearly didn't see China in the same way. She was always sort of very fatalistic that, you know, China's on the rise, nothing we can do, but sort of like bend ourselves to like what they need and our future is there. And yeah, it was about these kind of like intense debates happening mainly in Europe about China. Yeah, that makes sense. Gotcha. Okay, so not Chibok girls, but uh, something no, different yeah. related to China. This is yeah. This is like exactly that. <laughs> yeah. Was that twenty twenty? Yes, that same year I was covering like COVID and everything. I mean, like yeah, oh, it's wow. a lot of. I cover I cover a lot of weird stuff, man. Not at the same time, you know. Like, <laughs> I, I yeah, I'm like the world's worst beat reporter. Cause it's like Drew, cover this, and it's like all right, I've got a ten thousand word story about the Chibok girls, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or Drew, cover cover the Hungary. All right, what if we wrote about China, you know? Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it does seem the journal, like they have the foreign correspondent core that they have, and they kind of are much more flexible, I think, than many other publications in that, like, you know, you'll look at some of the bylines and it'll be like, why are these three people working on this it's story? Totally. But it's because it's the most important story and these are who we have. Yeah, so. totally. Um, okay, cool. Well, I think... You know, uh, we normally talk about a story and a story behind the story, but uh, I wanted to make it about your book. So I guess like just a few words before we move on to the faster paced questions about what you're doing these days. So could you just describe like how you've been involved in the Ukraine coverage and like what your next move is to, to Spain? I've kind of chipped out a few things for myself this year. One I can't really go much detail into because we're working on it. But, you know, we've had a string of stories about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which right from the occupation of the Chernobyl, you know, defunct power plant, I had this sense that nuclear power was going, you know, going to be a big piece of this war. Part of Russia's strategy clearly is to secure critical infrastructure, use it as a military base, use hospitals, uh, historic theater, places like that very cleverly, uh, the Russian military uses for its own purposes. So the occupation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, from the beginning I thought, wow, this is, this is something we got to keep an eye on. And it's a bit tricky because you don't want to discount the fact that there's a real risk that this plant could um, have a nuclear accident. Possible, for sure. The primary risk right now is to the staff. Uh, Ukrainian nuclear power plants, the Zaporizhia one uses 11,000 people. Uh, a Western, like an American nuclear power plant, would use far, 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 like a, like a fraction of that. Because systems are so automated, things are computerized. In Ukraine, they still use this sort of Soviet-era method of, like, one guy will man the pump, and he's going to make sure nothing ever happens to that pump, because his ability to feed his family and pay for his apartment in the nearby city of Inogadar is um, attached to his ability to keep that pump safe. So they use an excess of human beings to monitor this plant. And those human beings are being held at gunpoint. Many of them are fleeing. They've been tortured, beaten up, thrown into captivity. They've been roughed up the way Ukrainians all over Ukraine have been roughed up by uh, the Russian military. The difference being these guys are responsible for the safety of this power plant. 
And this latest move, so you've, you're now officially have left Poland, and is the idea you can kind of be based anywhere, and but you want to be somewhere in Europe, or? I think that's the idea. Yeah, I want it to be connectable to other parts of the world, but in Europe. And um, I've got an eye on Europe, um, Poland at least until we, until they've put in place a, a new person there. Okay. So uh, we already talked about the book, so that'll be the story behind the story. I usually also ask a question about a story that got away, a story you always wanted to do but were never able to do it, or maybe not always wanted to do, but you, it went wrong for some reason. You couldn't get an editor to take the idea, a trip went wrong, you couldn't get the right person to talk to you, any number of reasons the story doesn't come off. But does any stick out in your mind? Yeah, there is this one story that I had this story first, and this was... um. In 2013, the French liberated you know, uh, Timbuktu, which had been controlled by Al-Qaeda for, I don't know, 10 months, 12 months, something like that. And um, I got in a convoy to go to Timbuktu across the desert for two days with Lydia Polgreen of the New York Times and uh, Rukmini Kalamaki, who was with AP at the time, who is like, really, I, you know, we're, we're friends now, but even before we were friends... I would say she is just a fantastic journalist, like in- incredibly ambitious. And like, she just cleaned my clock every time we covered the same story. Cause we both would cover West Africa and, and, and we'd land in the same place. And like that evening I would see what she'd written and it would, you know, it would always just, you know, it was like Serena playing like me, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's not a question of who's going to win. It's like, is he even going to get a few points? So she was like, she's a fantastic journalist. Yeah, and she's... I'm like, uh, and I'm in this convoy with her. Uh, we're kind of traveling safety for numbers because, you know, we're driving through like Al-Qaeda held territory practically in the Sahara Desert. It took like two days of driving. It's just like absolutely beautiful. If you've never like seen the Sahara, it's just, I mean, it's like the emptiness is astonishing. And we get to Timbuktu and um, either the soldiers like manning the checkpoint on the way to Timbuktu are like so surprised we're there. Like, like you know, he's like, who are you? And he's like, we explain like blah, blah, blah. And he just says, bravo. And like, you know, like <laughs> opens up the gate. Basically, you made it. So we're there, we're in Timbuktu, which is like beautiful. And it's this old city. Like it's, uh, it's really humble. It's not nothing like extravagant about it. It's just like kind of an old city full of, you know, shrines and mosques built of mud. Though many of the shrines have been destroyed. Mud brick, you know, and it's really beautiful. And like kind of, there's a million stories there. So I had done this story about how like this library of ancient, uh, ancient, but like, you know, thousand year old texts have been smuggled out by donkey to avoid being burned by Al-Qaeda in the last days of their occupation there. You know, we wrote stories about like, okay, Boko Haram had been there. I wrote a story about that. We, and my, my basically the French are going to fly a few journalists out on Monday. And I know if I don't get that flight, I'm like, how am I going to get home? I'm in Timbuktu, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm going to take the flight. And Sunday, I am like in this garage. And like, I'm just looking at this, like a pile of papers on the ground. And I pick them up, and they're in Arabic, which is a little bit weird. It's like Molly uses French, not Arabic. It's kind of like, who wrote all this stuff in Arabic? Like, this is weird. And they're very official documents, you know? I'm holding this big stack of papers, like literally in my hand. This story slipped through my fingers. And I'm holding them, and then I'm like, well, I've got one day left here. I don't speak Arabic. I don't know what this is all about. I just put it back down, and I went to Muammar Gaddafi's house, because he had a house there, and it had been bombed. And I just spent the rest of the day just like, walking around his house there were like shells inside of it you know interviewing people who knew you know um, what the house looked like before it was blown up and i wrote a story about Gaddafi's house in timbuktu and um i went home rukmini stayed 
which is like exactly like she stayed for weeks you know <laughs> this is Rukmini like she stayed like everyone else literally everyone else went home and she didn't just stay for a few more days she stayed for weeks and she found those documents and those documents were a bunch of internal communication between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghrib other members of Al-Qaeda Islamic Maghrib even Al-Qaeda Central uh, back in Pakistan and she didn't just like write that stuff up she interviewed people who could corroborate what was in the documents. She did all this reporting and ended up being a Pulitzer finalist for that. And like, it, it really gets my goat to this day because I had those documents like in my hand. If I just stopped for a second and said, well, this could be interesting. Let me get this translated instead of like bouncing off to Gaddafi's house. I like, I, I would have <laughs> had that, but I just, anyway. Is that, is that the same as, uh... Because I know her work for for ISIS, that's also very based on documents. But this is Al Qaeda. Is it? Yes. Is it the same thing? This is her. Uh, what did they call it? The Al Qaeda files or something? What is she? One of oh, the right. It was the Al Qaeda files before it was ISIS. Yeah, I had the Al Qaeda files before Rukmini, but I put them down. I put them right back on the ground, and um, well, yep, <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> Crazy! Wow! Yeah. That is the difference between you know the dogged reporter who covers these terrorist groups like a career for years and like me, like who, you know, like, I, I, okay, off to the next thing, off to the next thing, off to the next thing, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, I mean, I could see, yeah, <laughs> I would probably do the same thing. A lot of people would, if you don't speak Arabic, like, it was in Arabic. I don't speak Arabic. You know, I just, she doesn't either, but she like put them into trash bags and like, however she flew home, she flew home with like trash bags full of documents that she got each one translated. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So kudos to her. Yeah, wow. Near miss. Um, that's a good story. Uh, next up is uh, what I call the lightning round. It's faster paced questions. Uh, do you feel ready for that? Sure. Go ahead. First question. What's the best journalistic article piece? It can be in whatever medium, video, audio, article, text that you've consumed recently. Did you see that Steve Rosenberg interview with Lukashenko where he it was this maybe a while ago? where he's like pushing him. I, I don't do TV, right? I'm like a print journalist. I'm mystified by the skill where he's basically telling Lukashenko, you lost the election, dude. You know, it's like he doesn't, you know, <laughs> says it much more eloquently than that. And Lukashenko like blows his top. And you can see in that moment, it kind of reminds me of the Gail King interview with R. Kelly, where like <laughs> a carefully phrased question prompts your subject to lo- like show who he really is. You know, mm-hmm. and like there on live television is Lukashenko, like, you know, with his finger wagging in this BBC journalist's face. That was incredible. I've watched that clip like eight times because, you know, Poland, it borders Belarus. I'd like walk out of the house on a random morning and I see Belarusians protesting through the streets. You know, we want freedom. What an interesting problem for Europe. Belarus, like in a way, Lukashenko has because he's kept that country under like quasi Stalinist rule for a quarter century has allowed the EU to avoid the very question it's facing in Ukraine, which is like, how much do you want to integrate this country in the West versus how much do you want to let it be a buffer state for, for Russia? Yeah, I had heard about that clip. I need to watch it myself from another it's journalist. Amazing. It's but, like the uh, Gale, it immediately recalls the Gale King one where R. Kelly gets up and is screaming. It's that kind of thing, you know? And they both just keep their complete cool as they're doing it. Yeah, wow. And then I ask, only if you have one, is there any publication something vaguely journalistic in nature that you read or listen to or watch just for fun that you find enjoyable? Like my idea of a good book is like a story that really happened and the um, author is nowhere in it, you know? Like, um, i trying to think of a good example of that. I read this book, Hidden Valley Road, last summer, which was amazing. It was about this um, 
family where I think out of 11 kids, like eight went became schizophrenic. Whoa. And it's like this medical mystery of like, is it genetic? Is it environmental? Is it like the mom's fault? Was she such a bad mother that she caused this? Which of course ends up not being the case. And it's like the mystery of schizophrenia told to this family, which themselves have these interesting secrets in their lives and they were baby boomers and they're they had the perfect suburban home that maybe wasn't perfect after all. And um, like that's my ideal book, like a nonfiction story told eloquently that really happened. Another one on that same front that I love is, um, love is a strange word to use for this book, but people really slept on this book, I think. But Columbine by David Cullen, that book, we all lived through this and we just sort of, Columbine has been in the back, especially for like, if you're our age, you know, like yeah. you were in high school or middle school in the night, late 90s, 2000s, like that stuff is really deep in your brain and i'm sure for kids who grew up even later even more so and he just has the most eloquent way of talking about what really happened at that school in a way that's very respectful that like it's it's not an easy book to read but it kind of feels like important to read to like just stop for a second and say like what the it's like the, it's as close as anyone has gotten i've ever read to answering the question of like why do young american men keep doing this it does get into the press because obviously we as journalists, we jumped for, oh, it's the trench coat mafia or something, you know, like when the, in the early hours of Columbine, we jumped for some conclusion that felt like comforting. It's goths, it's video games. But like the truth is like a little bit tougher to deal with. And, you know, it's it's a very eloquently written nonfiction account of that. I probably, I must, there must be something wrong with me. You're like, what literature do you read for fun? I'm like, there's this great book about Columbine, but um I find uh, narrative nonfiction, which like that's not memoir. I, I, if it's written well, I really, I really um, can I, I geek out on that. Sure, that's cool. Um, those are good. And then, if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I've seen The Big Short like five times. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like maybe more. Actually, I think actually that's an underestimate. When I was working at that newspaper Metro. At one point, I got a phone call from like an editor who's like, hey, this bank called Bear Stearns is collapsing. Can you write an article explaining it? And I was like, I don't know how, I must have been like, I don't know, 22, you know, 23. Um, I would like be so embarrassed to go back and read whatever nonsense I wrote. Because here I am with like no understanding of how banking works. And I wrote an article for like a fairly reasonably sized newspaper explaining why Bear Stearns collapsed. I really admire what Michael Lewis, um, it's not my style. Uh, but what what he's done, like I really admired, like the Big Short is just such a fantastic explanation for this crisis that like defined our lives. Like we really, it, you know, it was like it was as important as nine eleven or the fall of the Berlin Wall or something like that. I mean, in retrospect, the global financial crisis really was an apocalyptic event that ushered in all kinds of things, from Trump to the you know big rise of China to the you know reactions against the EU, Brexit, all this stuff. And some has a foot on the global financial crisis. And I think he wrote it in this way that's just amazing. Maybe a better answer, another person, another journalist that I like really admire that I wish I had his life. Um, and he's a friend of mine, so it's funny to say this, but is Bradley Hope. I don't know if you know Bradley Hope. No, I don't think so. He and, the, and, and Tom Wright, they wrote Billion Dollar Whale, which is like such a fun book, you know? And like, I literally never know what they're doing. I don't know how they get the story. They just like I don't know what they're like. What are those two doing like right now? Like I have no idea. They just like <laughs> pop up with like stories like once a year. That's just like phenomenal and amazing and, and totally bizarre and strange and makes for a great riveting podcast or book or whatever it is. I love that. That That's a fantastic life. That's great. Brandon Hope, you said? Uh, 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 Bradley Hope. Bradley Hope. Bradley Hope. Cool. Yeah. And 
What's your most embarrassing journalism-related story, if you have one? I do. Uh, and, uh, Barack Obama came to Senegal when I uh, was covering West Africa. And so I you know, flew in to cover the press conference, and um, I had just come back from vacation. And like, like almost the only clothes I had, my, like I had bought a pair of jeans. Actually, my mom <laughs> bought them for me. I went shopping with my mom, and she's like, oh, I'll, I'll pay for those jeans. So I'm like wearing these jeans my mom bought me, and I'm like lined up to enter the Senegalese presidential palace when they say uh like sorry you can't enter this with jeans like this presidential palace has like a you know dress pants only rule so like i had to go back to my taxi i don't know how this is embarrassing or what but like i had to go back and hail a taxi off the street and explain to the driver hey look thank you uh i don't actually need a ride what i need is to change pants with you (laughs) can i pay you to park right there and i will wear your pants and you can wear mine (laughs) <laughs> for like the next how many hours because i'm gonna go see barack obama you know so and he um he totally got it and um to my surprise and he was like totally game and he switched and he was wearing my jeans and i was wearing his like his pants were so covered in dust and dirt you know whatever it's fine he's just a guy who's driving a taxi and so so like i go back in this in the presidential palace in Dakar, and like i'm wearing these like incredibly like dirty dress pants but they are dress pants you know instead of like crisp iron brand new jeans that my mom bought me and um the Senegalese news, like someone interviewed me about it. Like as I'm walking <laughs> to the presidency and someone overheard me telling someone else about this. And like, I like Cineweb, this like website or something like interviewed me, like an American journalist tried to enter the presidential palace in jeans. And it was like a scandal. Cause like, to me, I understand jeans as like somewhat formal wear. Like you can buy like a really nice pair of jeans. And to me, that's like nice. Maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, <laughs> like to Senegalese people, the idea that someone would enter their presidential palace in jeans was like, like very kind of it was like a mini scandal like it was in the newspaper the next day it was like on the web people were talking about it um, <laughs> that's really so funny. anyway i became like the story for a bit but uh it was the press conference where barack obama said he wasn't going to scramble fighter jets to catch edward snowden and it's kind of funny because it was like taking place in the context of this russia thing snowden was on his way to russia and it's a little bit like oh russia huh that's interesting but anyway but yeah, that's hilarious. That reminds me of like Brasilia where, yeah, you to get into Congress, there are certain areas you need to have a jacket and tie and it doesn't matter what jacket and tie and most Brazilian yeah, exactly. politicians are dressed like complete slobs, but it, it totally. is a jacket, it is a tie and like they'll stop you. I had to do it ag- again. I was interviewing Andrzej Duda, the president of Poland uh, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And like once again, I forgot a jacket, a suit jacket. So I had to run to the Hotel Bristol, which is this big hotel down the street from the Presidential Palace in, in, in Warsaw, and like explain myself to the front desk. And they gave me a Hotel Bristol jacket. And that's why I interviewed the president in. <laughs> like, you know, it's like literally the most important source in the country. And I'm going to see him in like a Hotel Bristol jacket. But like at least I wasn't in like kind of a, a you know, wrinkled collared shirt that I was. I, I don't know what's wrong with me that I can't like remember <laughs> to like have clothes. But yeah. Those are great stories, though. That's really funny. What is your favorite film, book, TV show, or other piece of media about journalists and why? And it could be fiction or nonfiction. Well, you know, I don't feel that like I've never seen journalists accurately like portrayed in a way where I like, yeah, that's that is how it works. I've never watched The Wire. I hear The Wire has a season about that. And I guess Spotlight, you know, I guess Spotlight kind of got us right, you know, whatever us is. My wife's a teacher and I feel the same way about like whenever you see teachers portrayed in movies. They're either like completely daffy, like quasi artists, like in a chaotic room full of kids running amok, or they're like, you know, strict 
boring people in horn rim glasses like you know tutting from the front of a they're never like you know leading a guided lesson with kids set in stations you know it's like it's never like what teaching actually is for some reason like they oh like oh here's an example you know on the big short they go to see the wall street journal and like the guy has like a corner office it's like not even the editor-in-chief has an office that looks like that you know it's like this and i get it <laughs> filmmakers need to have a background that represents the presumed authority that this person has or doesn't have but it's a little bit like man you guys could have done a little bit more that was like 2008 like you know the wall street journal was going through its you know various transitions you guys could have done a little bit more with that as scriptwriters if you'd chosen to they took the 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 cheap route of just having some like journalist be like, I can't pay my bills, but I'm sitting in this wonderful office, so I'm not going to do your story, which made no sense to me. Anyway, that's I've watched that movie five times or whatever, so maybe that's my uh, my one quibble. <laughs> you know, Bad Blood has that amazing. You know, the first half of Bad Blood is the system failing, and the second half is you know this Elizabeth Holmes Theranos, like one person after another being taken in by this project as she like fakes her way to the top, giving blood results. Uh, blood test results that are totally nonsense and halfway through in comes um john carew the author of the book he obviously writes about himself but he really does a great job of obviously his own reporting he's describing but making reporting dramatic and showing how like how it's done without like being boring but like not amping up the tension around reporting either i thought the second half of bad blood where john carew himself becomes a character as he tries to unravel what this billionaire elizabeth holmes is really selling that's a great representation of what it's like at the wall street journal i think okay that's a good answer okay and then the final question is qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do and qualifications aside so disregard how much schooling or ability or whatever it would take what would you do sometimes when i get really like when this job is just too much like because i just cover like just like i'll be like dealing with the zaporizhia power plant and like you know, I'm still getting texts about like, I don't know, who knows what, like these other projects I'm doing. I take on way too many projects, you know, and they like, they never have very much to do with each other. <laughs> I'm covering Hungary and Nigeria and all this stuff at once. My dream is like, I just think, what if I just quit and opened a pizza restaurant that just served like, like pepperonis, olives, I don't know, like onions. That's what we got. Like, you know, it's just like, there you go. Like, <laughs> yeah. just keep it simple. Like, come in. You want it medium or large? That's what I can do. You know, just like a pizza restaurant where I just like, Literally just put pizza in the oven. Not to say like pizza making is like a, a real craft, you know, but like you don't have to deal with like, I don't know, the like spokesperson for a central European government calling you upset about your latest article while also like some hostage crisis is playing out somewhere and you're supposed to be covering it or whatever. You know, it's like it's, you have the peace of mind. My job today is to put the right toppings in the right pie and not have to manage sources and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And pizza is delicious. So yeah, it's who doesn't you like it? You know. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay, great. Well, uh, that's the last question. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Drew. Yeah, thank you too. Great to chat with you. Thanks, Jake. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Drew Hinshaw, a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. I'll post links to some of the things Drew talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. 
Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode when it will hopefully be posted on Sunday, November 6th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.